Welcome to This Week in Local, a Locology podcast featuring lively conversations about the local digital ecosystem, hosted by Locology analysts Mike Bolin and Charles Lachlan. Hello, and welcome to This Week in Local. I'm Charles Lachlan, Senior Analyst at Locology, joined by my colleague Mike Bolin. Mike, how's it going? Hey, Charlie, going well. Great. What do you have for us this week? So I'm returning to our perennial topic of subscription-based um, revenue models. And, yeah. you know, it's seen some ups and downs, which we have covered on this show and on Locology Insider. What I'm looking at this week is some evidence that there might be sort of a backlash or a reckoning or a correction to the sort of, you know, age of, of content subscription. So I'll get into that evidence in a second, but first to sort of back up for those who are sort of unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, um, we have seen over the last decade a rise in sort of subscription-based models. Um, you know, everything from, you know, news paywalls to Substack to streaming services and premium versions of your favorite social app. And there are a lot of reasons for that. The ones that we've talked about a lot on this show include like revenue diversification. So all these media companies that are sort of challenged by a volatile ad environment, and that's due to like privacy reform and, you know, soft economy that tends to like slash ad budgets and then, you know, oversupply and ad inventory. And, you know, you got like TikTok and others emerging, creating just this sort of, um, you know, oversupply. So for all those reasons, um, a lot of these media publishers have sort of gravitated towards these sort of subscription models. Again, everything from like news content to like social, a good example of that. An exemplar we've been always been pointing to is Snapchat plus they've done a, a good job with this. Now the, the, the sort of proponents of this model as they're doing it, have often justified it by saying that, you know, consumers want this, you know, consumers actually want to pay for their content. They're sick of having their data abused and like paying for content through their personal data, as is sort of endemic in, in advertising models. Um, but we've pointed out some evidence to the contrary from like a devil's advocate position. There have been surveys from like Pew and others that sort of indicate that most consumers, you know, everyone except for like wealthy individuals actually don't want to pay for content. They would rather have free content that is ad supported. So there's sort of diverging views on that. Now this week, that that's all just sort of the background up till this point. This week, I'm looking at some evidence that um, some of those demand signals from consumers that like actually don't want paid content are actually playing off through like live market evidence. So we're seeing a trend that a lot of publishers, everything from news publishers to streaming services, are starting to like retract to some degree from subscription models. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, and these are ones we've sort of pulled together to, to sort of, I don't know, track this trend. Um, one, TechCrunch uh, killed, recently killed its TC Plus and instead decided to refocus on ad-supported content with like, you know, maximum eyeballs that aren't sort of um, lessened through a paywall. Um, that, that's sort of a theme throughout. Um, Time Magazine removed its digital paywall altogether again, in favor of just maximum eyeballs to monetize through ads. Uh, Washington Post is sort of working on sort of a hybrid tiered approach with many different tiers of their subscription to accommodate a range of sort of personas. Uh, the Atlantic shifted to a tiered subscription model as well. Um, we're seeing streaming apps. I think this is, everyone knows this, 
including Netflix and Disney Plus, have started to launch cheaper tiers that include ads. Um, Spotify actually killed its paywall for some, not all, of its podcasts in favor of maximum listeners for ad monetization. Um, Gannett did something a bit different. It kept its paywall up, but it drastically lessened the quantity of articles that sit behind it. Chicago Sun-Times dropped its online paywall. Quartz dropped its online paywall and several others. I won't go through the whole list, but you get the point. There's sort of a trend that supports that previous narrative we've looked at that consumers may not want this. So I think that what we're seeing here is perhaps a lot of these publishers uh, reacting to the live demand signals that they're seeing. So it's 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 not proof positive, but it's an indication or it's evidence of this thing we continue to watch of what's the consumer appetite and what the market will bear when it comes to um, to paid content. So lots more to say on that, but I'll pause there for your reactions, Charlie. Well, um, this is interesting. What, what makes me wonder if there's going to be enough ad support to justify this decision among so many. Yeah. You know, because didn't they sort of go to subscriptions because they didn't want to be relying on advertising? And now yeah. sort of going back to relying on advertising, is the advertising going to be there? Now, I'm a big podcast listener other than, you know, the ones we produce ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of ads on podcasts, and I think they're at very high premiums for the top podcasts. So that model seems to be working at the top, at the tip of the iceberg, I guess. But is it, but, you know, further down, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think if you have a very loyal niche audience, is subscription still a better play? Yeah. I don't know, you know, and it kind of depends if you're a solo person doing a sub stack on a topic no one else knows as much as you about, you know, can you still live off that, you know, premium subscription yeah. model? But if you're a big player with hundreds of thousands, if not millions mm. of viewers, readers, whatever it is, you know, is the ad model going back to the ad model going to work. Yeah. But I think it's just too many people hitting paywalls and walking away, right? Yeah. I don't know what th that signal you were talking about well, is, so is that. Two reactions to that. One is um, where we see it works some places and not others. So right. where subscription models tend to thrive is with premium products. Like, mm -hmm. you know, subscriptions and commodities don't mix, right? right. So right, right. so the way that translates to like the, the media, digital media environment is that you have subscription models that are doing quite well. Wall Street Journal, Economist, right. New Yorker, The Atlantic, New York Times. Isn't New um, York Times always pointed to as the pinnacle of yeah, yeah, it's, that it's, subscription just crushing it? Exactly. That's still true. You yeah, know? it is. So I think that's one thing. It depends on who you are and if you can get away with it. The other thing to your point is like they sort of ran from – ad support towards subscriptions. Now they're running back. And I right. think that's that's mm -hmm. like evidence that you sort of need to A-B test it because there's this sliding scale. Like you sort of need to do one or the other. It's hard to do a hybrid approach because one weakens the other. So mm -hmm. if you think about it, if you're going for an ad revenue model, you want to really go for it and lean into that by getting as many eyeballs as possible that you can monetize and that you can boast to your advertisers in terms of number of impressions and all that good stuff. It's hard to do that if you sort of chip away at your reach figures because part of your content is paywalled. So mm -hmm. it's like, do you go for either or? Can there be a hybrid approach? Um, this reminds me of a discussion I had recently where someone said, you know, the Super Bowl is so popular. Why don't they just make it like pay-per-view, like a, you know, like a heavyweight boxing match? 
I think they'd be better with the ads, right? Yeah, right. But my reaction initially was, well, the Super Bowl is really known for its ability to get like $7 million per 30-second spot. And, mm-hmm. and they really lean into that. So like, you know, however many 50 to 60 million people who watch the Super Bowl, um, if they were to paywall it, that might be 20 million, right? And then can they still get the amount of ads from that to make up the gap or, or will the subscription revenue make up the gap in the loss in in ad support that they get from less viewers? So you kind of got to look at them both together. And and again, there's sort of like this A-B test required to, to get to land on that right formula. And I don't think there's like a one size fits all. Right. I wonder how you happen to know, sorry to put you on the spot here, how is Netflix done with the ad supported option, you know, free with ads or whatever it is. I actually don't know. Um, yeah. I've heard whispers that um, it, it hasn't been great. And there's also so, some evidence what they've done with the with the tiers of subscriptions since they launched that. Like they, they've been sort of creative. And again, maybe A-B testing where they would like remove the middle tier, the one sat right above the ad supported one, the cheapest non-ad supported one. I think they got rid of that. Um, I don't know what signal that tells us, but I know that they're sort of reaching around for the right model. And the other thing I'm wondering, and again, you don't have to have the answer to this, is I'm wondering if any of this is coming from advertisers who want more options. Uh, seems odd, but brands you know, are used to using advertising to drive sales. And are they saying, we need more inventory to, to, to buy? Very likely so. I mean, maybe they're you know in their sort of pitch meetings. Yeah. Uh, where they're trying to get big advertisers on board or or their agencies are doing that on their behalf. The feedback they're getting from advertisers is, you know, we 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 just we need more reach um to to get excited about this. Uh, yeah. Could could yeah. be that. Yeah. Uh, that's total speculation, but that could be it. That was speculation on my part as well. Yeah, yeah. I was it was a point of curiosity. Sure, sure. So let's um shift gears a little bit here into what I kind of wanted to talk about today, something I'm was working on <clears throat> before we started recording. And that's something I've been kind of keeping an eye on for a little while. And it's this notion of back to AI, back to beating the AI horse, still live and kicking horse, by the way. Um, And the idea of AI driving a huge shift in how companies are formed, startups, tech startups, but perhaps other forms of businesses as well. And this idea of the one person unicorn has been bandied about recently and it sort of came out, uh, it's been written about in the past few days. There was a, something on YouTube that I watched, and it was an excerpt of a conversation between Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit, and also, you know, Mr. Serena Williams, and uh, Sam Altman, who we all know is, you know, the CEO of OpenAI, where essentially it was put out there, you know, will we have a one-person unicorn? And by that, we mean a startup formed by one person and then it stays one person essentially in, until it scales through through scale, you know, to unicorn status, which is a billion dollar pre-IPO valuation, and a term I have complained about in the past as one of my business term pet peeves, you know, along with North Star and a bunch of others. Um, you know, I always have pet peeves handy. But anyway, that aside, putting that aside, uh, Altman's answer to this in this sort of co- conversation I watched between him and Alexis Ohanian was. We'll have a 10-person unicorn very soon, 
and a one-person unicorn is something that a, he said he was on a chat group with other CEOs. I don't know which ones. He didn't say, but that there's a bet betting pool forming among this group of when is the first billion, you know, one-person unicorn going to come about. The implication was sooner than any of us might think. And so, what does this really mean? It means that AI tools, and we talk about them all the time, you know, for content creation, you know, writing code, whatever, uh, you know, coming up with the logo for your business, coming up with the name of your business, creating the website content and outline, and essentially creating the website for you, and all kinds of other things that it can do, create demo videos, whatever. Um, all those things could theoretically at least be managed by one or very few people. Whereas before you might start out one person writes the initial code, then you get developers to come on board and refine it and iterate on it, et cetera. And maybe another person is the sales guy and he goes and gets a few brands to buy the you know MVP or whatever it is. However, that formation process happens. Now it'll stay small longer uh, and possibly even stay one person in some cases. And Really interesting idea that you know one person will create a billion dollar company using AI. We'll we'll see if it happens. I have a couple of theories. One theory is that this is good, this notion is going to draw a lot of people in, many of whom won't have what it takes in terms of cleverness and resourcefulness or whatever skills will be required in this case to actually pull this off. So I think whereas you might see a billion dollar one person a one person unicorn, you're also probably going to maybe see a higher failure rate uh, of startups. So I don't know, Mike, if you have a reaction to this notion. Yeah, that last thing you said is true because once you lower the barriers to entry, you get you know a flooded market, and then you just have a lot of you know failures that result, yeah. or at least a high percentage. Now, um, but back to the sort of core fundamental principle here. Um, it's interesting. Like this is sort of the lean startup. Right. Uh, construct on steroids. On steroids. Yeah, use that. Yeah. 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 Um, cause you know, we've seen this for a while where like, you know, I've worked for companies that have like, you know, f an accounting department of like three or four people. And then I've worked for companies subsequently that do all that same amount of work through a combination of QuickBooks and Expensify and like right. software packages that are like 1999 a month. Right. Um, and, and that really is just sort of like the era of SaaS and the era, era of the cloud that has really sort of made it possible to do a lot of those rote functions. So that gets me to my next point, which is what can be offloaded to AI, right. what can't be. I think this works for certain businesses and not others. Yeah. Um, you know, scalable businesses like software, SaaS. Let's 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 focus on SaaS. Um, you know, that's a classic scalable business where you have fixed cost that it then is um, subject to variable revenue. You know, the amount of money it takes for time and resources it takes to develop a piece of software and sell it versus like you can theoretically sell that infinitely versus a product where every unit of revenue has a unit of cost or fulfillment cost attached to it, like a law firm, right? right. Um, you, you, you hit a wall, it's not scalable. So for those things that are highly scalable, again, software, certain types of content, um, and um, yeah, the, they, they can be highly scalable. And that's where this works. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's, they didn't say that in the interview, but I think that makes perfect sense. That's probably what they were thinking about when they're talking about this businesses that, you know, were lean before, or you, or you could go lean before, but you, the idea of lean in the sort of the pre AI era may have been a dozen people yeah, or 20 people or 50 Now you people, can pull it off with like half that or less or yeah. fewer. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And again, you know, I, I, I do think if Sam Altman says it's going to happen, that doesn't mean it's going to happen exactly when he says, and he didn't say when. <laughs> so yeah. he probably doesn't know, but he probably has a sense that it's sooner than everyone else thinks, and he may be right. Um, but I, I agree with you that it's going to be in businesses that are, you know, SaaS, you know, software, previously scalable businesses will become just that much more scalable, uh, you know, uh, with fewer people. So there's, you know, obviously there's the downside to this. No one likes, seems to like to talk about the down. Well, some people like to talk only about the downside of AI. Others don't want to talk about it at all. And mm -hmm. that in this case, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, more job loss, social media marketing managers mm -hmm. and developers and CMOs and growth marketing people, uh, may have a, you know, a harder time finding a startup to hitch their wagon to in the future. If this pans out as these gentlemen seem to imply in the conversation I was watching, we shall see. We shall yep. see. Uh, anyway, Mike, why don't we talk about who won the week? Yeah, uh, you mentioned Sam Altman as part of that whole um, discussion. Uh, my who won the week relates to that, or or what we do um, occasionally is flip it. Who lost the week? Um, right. OpenAI um, actually lost their claim um, to trademark the term ChatGPT hmm. um, with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, who has denied that attempt. Or actually, the the, the exact trademark they were trying to um, trademark was GPT, not chat GPT, just GPT. Um, it's, um, they, they claimed it was just merely descriptive of a feature and also overly broad, which are things that tend to get you rejected from trademarks. Hmm. Um, and, uh, that's probably bad news from them. I don't know what sort of like appeals process in place, but if this actually is what they end up with, it means that they don't have the ability to enforce, um, all of the just sort of like inevitable copycat apps and, and other things that are just likely going to cause some market confusion, but mostly pain for open AI. Yeah. So this next week, this week in local will be renamed podcast GPT. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Why not? Interesting. Um, do you think that the trademark, I know we're not doing a whole thing here, but uh, I'm curious if the trademark office just kind of looked at this through the same lens, they look at everything which seems to be what you're suggesting, or if there is some bigger picture sense of let's not give these guys too much power. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the trademark office makes those kinds of policy decisions, but I'm, it feels like maybe the, somebody somewhere doesn't want them to have that much power. Yeah. You know? So for utility patents, they assign yeah. like a, a, an actual sort of engineer as the sort of patent clerk for your case with trademarks. Right. I don't know how, sophisticated they get but you get basically get assigned um a a patent clerk that then i guess is they have a checklist to go through and they have yeah. to make some judgments against that checklist they they exactly i mean yeah. it's it's fairly road or as much as it can be even though they're dealing with like variable nuances of every one that comes in they have mm -hmm. to keep sort of a certain degree of protocol um yeah. i've just oddly spent a lot of time in, in a previous life, um, investigating and, and writing about the, the inner workings of the USPTO. So that's, that's the only reason I know that. Okay. Well then I will defer to you because yeah. I know nothing about it. Um, but just very interesting. Okay. So I'll, I'll share my who on the week. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Evocalize a company that's often in our, uh, we've had them on the podcast. We write about them a lot on 
Locology Insider, they landed a pretty big deal this week uh, with guaranteed rate. And if you're a Chicagoan like I am, even though I'm a Cubs fan, guaranteed rate field is what used to be called uh, Comiskey Park, where the Chicago White Sox play. So that aside, a guaranteed rate's big mortgage, you know, platform. I thought it was and Comerica. Or was it Comerica somewhere in between? Comerica is somewhere else. I'm, I'm drawing yeah, a blank okay. on where that is. But uh, yeah. but yeah, it is guaranteed rate field. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but, you know, it's a big branding, stadium branding. So they're that level of, of company. And um, I, I think this what's interesting about this, they've got to deal with them. Read about it in detail on Locology Insider. But what's interesting about it is it's sort of a, it seems to be a follow through on this recent FCC decision that Evocalize talks about a lot uh, to sort of close the what was called the lead generation loophole. And what it does is it sort of changes the game in terms of how companies in certain industries acquire leads and sort of buying them from big lead gen companies and then like just hitting the leads you buy with text messages and so on. Uh, kind of kind of out on the outs now and you really have to do more to generate your own leads rather than acquire them. Maybe I'm getting that a little bit wrong, but that's broadly my understanding of, of what's going on. So companies that used to just be big purchasers of leads now have to be do more to create the leads themselves through direct engagement with their customers and, and mm. prospects and so on. So I think this is creating a pivot opportunity for companies like Evocalize to create new products and services to address this change that's going on. And that seems to be what this deal with guaranteed rate is all about. So that's why I think it's interesting. And that's why I think Evocalize won the week. Anyway, Mike, do you want to read us out? Yeah. And before I do that, our producer tells me that Comerica Park is where the Detroit Tigers play. I had that confused. So um, <laughs> that, that actually that does ring a bell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So thank baseball nuts we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, thanks, Charlie. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been This Week in Local. Stay tuned every week for more episodes. You can find the show on all major podcast networks and find out more at Locology.com. Please subscribe, like, and comment. Your engagement helps others find us. And if you're interested in being a guest or sponsor, you can email us at podcast.locology.com. So I'm Mike Boland with Charles Lachlan. Our producer is Dara Sweat. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Locology's This Week in Local with Mike Boland and Charles Lachlan. Be sure to subscribe for more.